you're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. For only in becoming gods do we free ourselves from this mortal flesh. <laughs> yep, yep. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. And I'm Alexandra Rowland. Uh, and this is episode 10, Death Becomes Us. It's been a couple weeks since we recorded an episode. We had a little bit of a vacation there, did we not? Did we? It, it, did, did we? Did we? It, maybe, it only, it's, maybe it's just that like <laughs> time has skewed for me the last couple weeks. Like I have, no longer have a sense well, of, it's, it's like, of time. It's like the post-release uh, thing, you know, post-book release, yeah, everything, kind yeah, of new, job, new job, thing. job thing. And speaking yeah, of, of yeah, release yeah. things... Marshall Ryan Maresca. Yes. yes. You have a release when, thing. Yes. When this episode airs, then Shield of the People will just have come out. Um, Woo. Woohoo. So that is the second book in the Meridane Elite series, the 10th novel in all the Meridane books all combined. It's. How do you have 10 books out? How do you have 10 books out? Your first book came out in 2015, right? Yeah. That was four years ago how do you have 10 <laughs> fucking books out and two books out next year yeah stop it i i, I can't <laughs> that's My... the problem <laughs> like maybe maybe starting this podcast will slow maybe. Him down a little bit <laughs> Like, you know how people talk, like, some people are like, when it's like, oh, now I have to write the second book and they freeze up. I, like, had the opposite problem. I, like, I'm like, no, I just have to go <laughs> like a cartoon character running through a brick wall <laughs> without oh. any thoughts of stopping. Because if I slow down, then I'll realize how crazy this all is. And then... <laughs> so just keep running, well, Wiley now, Coyote. Now we've had our... <laughs> Our moments of hating Marshall Ryan Maraska a little bit for being a man who has 10 books out. <laughs> Soon to be 12. What the fuck? Uh, do we have any other... Anyway, point of that... Sorry for interrupting. Point of that was, go buy Marshall Ryan Maraska's yes. book. I'm sure it's very good. I look forward to reading it. I just bought a copy which should arrive tomorrow. Woohoo! Of the first one or of all... Of the first one, of the first one, right. Go buy all terrible... <laughs> No. I, well, listen, I'm a terrible friend and a terrible podcast co-host, and I had never read any of your books, and suddenly I couldn't, could no longer live with the guilt. Uh, and so I was like, I should buy a copy. Uh, and yeah, so I am getting your mass market paperback because I was like, it's been a long time since I have read a mass market paperback. And it's the most booky book. It is such a booky book. book right? It is. It's been a long time. And so I was like, oh man, I really want a mass market paperback. There, there is something beautiful about the mass market paperback form that I feel like we're losing. Because yeah. it's like, like that's the book you can like stick in your purse or stick in your exactly. pocket uh -huh. and take anywhere and slip out when, you know, life gets boring and you need to read. Yeah. I love a mass market I'd paperback. I'd say like... My, my dad was like the master of the hiding the mass market paperback. He would have jackets with pockets sewn on the inside so that he always had a book with him. It was amazing. You'd like be amazing. at a family gathering and all of a sudden, you know, like he's in the corner, like reading. <laughs> it truly was. That man is goals. Hashtag goals. That man is a yes. hero. Yes. <laughs> he is a hero. The hero right. indeed. Well, um, by Marshall Ryan Mareska's book okay. uh, comes out now soon uh, for us October in our already out by the, <laughs> it, yes it will have come out at some point in the past future in the future past what is tense since in our future past future whatever it is now we are right around Halloween we decided that an excellent topic for today would be Sound effects, spooky house, thunder, crash, whatever. Death. So understanding death, death in a culture and what it means and what things surround it. And yeah, so death. That's a conversation yes. killer, but it's going to be our conversation starter. <laughs> conversation uh, killer, a <laughs> Which I think is, is kind of a good place to start in terms of like, how does a culture 
understand death. Like, I feel like our culture has a relatively negative view of death. Would that be a fair thing to say that for the most part, like our cultural connotation of death is a pretty negative one, but that, that's, oh, yeah. that's a good choose for this a the presume this moment is destruction. Um, of does it have to be that way? Does death have to be a negative within a culture or could it be positive or neutral or a mixture of these? And, and what does that say about values, other concepts, other cultural elements? Yeah. Um, I have a dot point a little further down about sort of death in our culture and how it's so sterilized for us and it's so hidden away like we have built this thing up where we never have to come in contact with it at all uh my dad died a couple years ago and i never saw his body uh and it's not just the death of people that's hidden from us i've never seen any dead bodies at all right except for like roadkill <laughs> right right uh like as you as you are briefly driving driving past it like the death of of animals is also hidden from us like in terms of how we we kill them for for food that is very hidden away and and considered disgusting and weird and sanitized th- so for consumption steak, yes sanitized for consumption which is a good thing but like you see a steak in the grocery store and you don't really have the deliberate mental connection between that and a cow right like a steak is its own thing and you don't think about the cow Yes. Does that I mean, make unless, sense? Unless you're yes. like a hillbilly, yeah. like like me, and 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 you you right. butchered things before. But yeah, no, it, it's definitely true. Right. And I think um, I think yeah. that's absolutely accurate. That you you never have to see death in any kind of form. You know, in our in our culture, except by accident. You know, people mm-hmm. people used to die at home. We don't really deliberately do yeah. that very much anymore. Um, so it is kind of a different trapping surrounding death and, and how close it is to us. For sure. So you have a wonderful, Rowena has been doing the dot points recently and she's been doing an amazing job. Uh, and the next dot point here is mortality as a window to view on immortality, if any. I would love to talk about this. This sounds fascinating. <laughs> so one thing, I mean, I was kind of thinking about the way that you think about death kind of is impacted by um, what you believe about an afterlife, if any. Um, if you believe that there mm-hmm. is any element of immortality, I think that you think differently about death. So like religions that have um, the belief that the soul is immortal and goes on to be something else or be in another place or believe in reincarnation or anything like this have a different concept of death and can sometimes turn it into kind of a positive. Like if you think of the old Norse religions of like, if you have a good death, then you're invited to the great feast hall, Right which is very different than I mm-hmm. think if you have a concept of death as a nothingness or a complete ending, it, it's a different way of framing death, not necessarily um, more yeah. negative. It can still be done positively, but it's certainly different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or if you have a culture that has a view of uh, reincarnation uh, where death is sort of the bookend of this so in this life you had the opportunity to do the best job you can right and then you die and then you get reincarnated and you have another opportunity your slate is sort of like you're given another chance to try to do another better job in the future and if you keep doing a better job every time then eventually you achieve enlightenment and you get to not be reincarnated anymore uh, and sort of break out of the cycle so in that case i don't know how much the attitude towards death is different in cultures that have reincarnation uh, but i can see how it could be viewed as more of a positive thing less of a pure tragic thing although i think that there is going to be always an element of tragedy across cultures just because we the survivors are losing someone who is so important to us and loss is always going to be painful on some level. Grief and death can be separated in a lot of ways and understood um, as having different roles to play. Um, And I I think, um, you know, you point out secondary fantasy worlds can also like answer some of this stuff overtly if you want to. Reincarnation can be part Mm -hmm. of your secondary fantasy world in a overt way you could have afterlives or gods who are interacting with the world in a way that you know what an afterlife looks like um so those are yep or just ghosts who just hang around and keep talking (laughs) to you 
Yep. Where the afterlife can be a physical place. People can go and like grab the people that died and bring them right. back and all that. Like how many how many stories have that as the key plot point of like we're going to the underworld oh, yeah. and we're right. getting we're getting our friend and we're walking out with right. Them. Um, just don't yeah. eat the pomegranate seeds and you're good to don't go. Eat the pomegranate don't seeds. look back over your shoulder. Or like a book like uh, Cloud Atlas, where it is about the same soul being reincarnated in these different lives over the course of mm-hmm. time. Like mm-hmm. you can do in your secondary world fantasy or even in primary world fantasy, have stories where definitive concepts of what death actually is in your world can be can be articulated which right yeah which is a a great form of power that we have over the worlds we build that we can we can make these concrete decisions and enact them and and, and immortality could even be a commodity in your worlds you know depending that if Mm -hmm. if it is something Mm -hmm. that has to be right that is, is accessible in some way but you have to have a certain you know item incantation access to something it becomes a question of you know power structures and authority and is this affordable um like i, I was i was watching the original boris karloff mummy which is a trip by the way um and was thinking about just that idea of access that you had only the wealthiest wealthiest people in egypt who were accessing these highest levels of theoretically to them immortality and like you could really play with some interesting social structure stuff with with that oh yeah I mean, and also I think that, so I am working on world building a culture right now for my (laughs) book, uh, which has a completely different definition of what death is, because there is like the actual physical death, the death of the body. Um, But then as a society, they actually, you can like choose quote unquote when or you can choose when you quote unquote die you can be considered dead you can attend your own funeral and i haven't quite worked out what is involved with that and how your social status changes or why anyone might do that but i think that it would be really really interesting to have someone just decide oh i'm going to be quote unquote dead now like my heart is still beating i'm still alive but i am now for legal purposes, I have now, for legal purposes, dead. Right, like you're dead to um, me, but but really, <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, like death doesn't always have to be the death of the body, and even in our current culture, like we have some arguments about what is considered death because we have yeah. brain death, right? We have people being kept alive through artificial means. Are they? dead are they alive are they someplace in between how do we treat them ethically and respectfully and how do we decide at what point to end life support like these are huge complicated questions absolutely and i think you know kind of coming back to the idea of of what how do people die is it is it something like um yeah. like alex's world where they're like signing a piece of paper or most of the time you know it's some kind of natural process but how are people in your world dying how are they actually going out because our modern world is very different than mm-hmm. say the world of 100 years ago which is very different than the world of 200 years ago in terms of how the majority of people are actually dying what are your major causes of death what does the average lifespan look like Um, I think that average lifespan leads us into some other interesting uh, topics and and facts, because the uh, who wants to talk about the infant mortality rate in the medieval era? Okay, so um, pretty much anything before, you know, we can put a pin in about 1930 is I think when we really start the separation of like the modern medical era from the historical, Um, the infant mortality rate was hugely high so when you see average lifespan data it'll often give you something like 40 years old like oh my god you were middle-aged at 20 um, people were all dying at 40 but actually a lot of that is skewed by the high infant mortality rate so about 50 percent of people weren't living to reach adulthood you had the highest number of people at least in the 18th century dying by the age of five was the biggest bracket of people um in any given year passing away had died by the age of five. That really skews your data quite a bit on how 
long people are living. And actually, historically, people were living into their 60s, 70s, even Mm -hmm. 80s pretty regularly. Um, The average lifespan, even correcting for infant mortality, was a bit lower, but not the dramatic lower that we have um, if we don't kind of account for the high, the high, high numbers of, of children and infants who were dying, particularly, I mean, mostly of disease. So that's a major question to ask to begin with, you know, if you're creating a culture, well, are most people even surviving to adulthood? And then are there kind of major factors, like, is there, are there major diseases that everyone gets? Like, you know, in the 18th century, I think of smallpox, it was like, well, okay, they survived smallpox. That's a good shack. Like you can move on, um, and they're more likely to reach adulthood now. You know what? What are some major factors like that that could really impact lifespan or how whether or not people are living to a ripe old age on average in a world? Yeah. Well, you have bunches of diseases. You mentioned smallpox, which is a big one. Um, you have plain old accidents like if you step on a rusty nail and get tetanus uh you know that's i mean it's it's a disease but it's also like due to an accident then there is like straight up accident like getting run over by runaway horse or something like that um or getting an infection in a tooth and you don't have access to a competent medical uh practitioner uh all sorts of things or if there are no medical practitioners in your culture who can deal with a tooth yeah. infection at right. all, like that's just, you know, no, you're going to die. Sorry. <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, as kind of an example in the 18th century, they had what they called um, two surgeries. They called capital surgeries, which were surgeries that if you didn't do it, the person was going to die. Like there was no way around it. And that was trepanation mm-hmm. and amputation. Because if you get gangrene in the 18th century, you're done. Like, there's no way around this. Like, it's a systemic infection. You're done, so we, we can't do anything about that. The only thing we can do is cut off the arm or whatever before it happens. So, you know, kind of, yeah, thinking about intervention to avoid death gets a little bit interesting, too, with what the technology is available and how people think about using it. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to point out that a lot of times people underestimate how good a historical culture was at medical stuff like especially for like okay invasive surgeries and things like that sure knowing about germ theory absolutely yes we did not have that under control reliably until the uh what 1800s or so we're figuring it out anyway yeah we yeah we were starting to figure it out but like people were still giving it a shot right because like if someone is in agony in front of you and they're gonna die anyway like you're going to give it a shot, right? Because either the surgery kills them or the surgery doesn't kill them or they die from the thing that they're suffering from, right? So you might right. as well take the shot that you could have a chance of saving them if you give it give it a try um, rather than just standing by and saying, well, I guess you're dead now. <laughs> Say goodbye well, to your and, family. And just like empirical as kind of, you know, humans can be we're, we're pretty yeah. good with empirical data so you figure out like oh hey this worked this time let's try it again oh hey it worked this time too and so you get weird remedies like putting oil or wine on wounds that doesn't really make sense except there are antimicrobial properties to those things and mm-hmm. so sometimes it works your shots better sometimes it works yeah um i think i read about i'm not sure if it was a doctor in either china or the middle east who was like, hey, I noticed that if you put moldy bread on a wound, sometimes it doesn't get infected. And it's like, oh, you know what? You just discovered penicillin. Great job. <laughs> Not all moldy bread. Listeners, don't do this. So don't try this at home, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, but te- I- technology and and that kind of empirical innovation impacts what happens quite a bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. And one thing, too, that I kind of want to like just riff on really quickly with that is um, so often you see in both historicals and fantasies that are based on somewhat historical worlds, the concept that childbirth is this major, major killer. And, you Mm -hmm. know, got a woman. Well, she has a kid. Probably should kill her off because childbirth. Um, But it's it's really (laughs) kind of an overstated, inaccurate 
understanding. And when you get into the amazing thing is they actually kept death records historically in a lot of places. So for instance, in, in London, they kept death records from the late 17th century onward. It was like an early public health thing, the plague, like how many people died mm. of the plague last month, this month, let's publish it. Um, but they also kept track of other causes of death and they would, they would publish these. So we have them, which is really cool. And if you end up kind of comparing the birth rates based on baptism and stillbirths um, to the deaths in childbirth, it ends up way, way lower than than how we usually portray it. Still wildly high for our modern yeah. medicine, but you're looking at usually around one in 1,000 births, kind of on average across all these years. When you look at um, a lot of medical personnel also kept their own records. Um mm. See what that is up. way better than even I knew because I was thinking, right? I was thinking you were gonna say, like, oh, only like one in 50 died in yeah, childbirth, no. like <laughs> one in 1,000 births, roughly. Huh. And it depends upon where you're looking and if you're looking at um, obstetric records, which tend to be a bit higher because they were complicated births versus midwife records, which are a little lower because they're uncomplicated, mm-hmm. but still, like, you know, it's it's a definite kind of like course correction to say, okay, how many women should I really be killing off in childbirth in my second world fantasy just because they don't have access to modern medicine? Now that doesn't yeah. mean that childbirth wasn't still highly risky compared to today. And, and certainly you did not have factors to alleviate a lot of the unpleasantness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can certainly still be a major, you know, thing that happened, but yeah, something to really interrogate kind of how how do we understand a lot of what we think killed a lot of people maybe yeah didn't (laughs) yeah for sure so I think we've had kind of a tangent onto like a lot of medical stuff and technology (laughs) stuff so let's bring it back to more death in particular and how society views death well how a society is going to view death is usually going to be tied directly to whatever their religion is and we haven't delved too much into Mm -hmm religion as a world building element but, these, but we I mean, will. Those things are going to be <laughs> we will of course because we're masochists but these i mean that those are two things that are going to be intrinsically tied because what a key aspect of religion is about is is answering that question of what have what is the larger purpose of life and thus what happens beyond this particular phase of life be it they're an afterlife or be it reincarnation or ascending to a new level or anything like that. And I also think that that what Alex, you brought up earlier, like proximity to death is, is that something that you commonly see people die around you? How comfortable are people with death? Like I realized earlier, I used the term passed away instead of died. So does a culture use euphemisms to deal with death? Are they very blunt are they very religious in their terminology and tone? Like those are all things that can really reflect how they think about death. Clearly I have a slight, like I must be polite and soften my tone discomfort with death because I'm using the term passed away. Right. Right. Let's no longer, no longer, no longer with us. Uh, We've (laughs) lost him. Uh, He's gone to Jesus. Yeah. He's gone, gone to meet home. his maker. What other euphemisms can you think of just off we, the top like, of your head? You also have the kind of like the kind of funny ones that we use to kind of like. Oh, kick the bucket. Yeah. Kick the bucket, bought the farm, whatever his profession is, you know, like he's. <laughs> Joined the choir in yes. bed. <laughs> he's an ex-parrot. <laughs> he's pining for the fjords. <laughs> Why didn't we title this episode that instead? <laughs> so, so speaking of getting very, very blunt with, with death, um, Death involves a dead body. What yeah. do you do with it? That's a good question because you have to do something with it. You can't just <laughs> leave it lying there, except in the cultures you where you it. do just leave it lying there. That's called sky burial, and it's pretty neat, except you but still don't just still leave it do lying something. there. You still do stuff with it. There, like, there's, there's funeral rites involved, and there's like a special place where you leave it lying out. Uh, you don't just leave it in the no, kitchen. No, I know that that would be it. a very interesting world building choice. That wherever someone dies, they just like I'm sorry if it's inconvenient. It was right in the middle of the street, but you're just going to have to leave him there. I'm sorry. I when I was a small child, I was first of all when I, in third grade, I was absolutely obsessed with ancient Egypt. Who wasn't? But <laughs> immediately following that, I was obsessed with mummies, and I remember that I had this 
amazing book. I think I remember the title of it was How to Make a Mummy Talk. Let me see if I can Google it and see if it's still around. And it was all about mummies in different cultures and like how they made them. Um, so like the ancient Egyptian form of uh, embalming them. Uh, there was also another one, I think, somewhere in East Asia where they're kind of like smoked into jerky. Yeah, it's How to Make a Mummy Talk. It's by James M. Deem. And it's like for uh, like middle grade level. But I fucking loved that book. Uh, and so like people have a lot, a lot of ways of preserving dead bodies because we kind of want to keep around a part of that person. We feel like if we if we can just make the the vessel somehow preserved and immaculate, then we can keep that person with us. Well, and and it's interesting because I, I feel like we're kind of, you know, like, oh, well, we don't have mummies, but we definitely have dead people storage. Like our culture is, you know, yeah. pretty much most people will choose one of two forms of internment, which is either burial, where you have literal storage where you're going to, you know, visit grandma, or they have an urn um, or a niche grandma on the where you keep grandma on the mantle or in a niche in a mausoleum somewhere. Yeah. And then you do occasionally have people who will have those ashes scattered and say, don't keep them around. But I think that keeping a space for someone who's passed away is is the majority choice in our culture yeah so this is a fascinating thing a little while ago i was in guanajuato mexico oh yes and you showed us some cool (laughs) pictures of dead bodies (laughs) yes so in guanajuato at some point in like the 1830s there was a cholera epidemic so tons of people died you know right away and they were buried quickly in you know in you know in the local cemetery and because of the local conditions of moisture and salt in the earth these bodies naturally mummified Mm. now this is the part where it gets even weirder and it ties back to one of our favorite things that always drives world building taxes (laughs) amazing (laughs) death and taxes yep (laughs) It's the death and taxes episode, everyone. In Guanajuato, at some point in the 1870s, they passed a law that you had to keep paying a tax for your relatives to stay buried in the cemetery. All right. So if <laughs> so, if you didn't, if people didn't pay, and plenty of people like had no living relatives, and thus no one paid it, your body was disinterred. And in digging up all these bodies. For, you know, the lack of, they discovered, wow, all these people naturally mummified. That's really neat. And then just put them on display. <laughs> so <laughs> so there, I mean, there's a museum, like the museum, it, it is a tourist attraction in Guanajuato. They have a museum of the, of the mummies of Guanajuato. Wow. Now it's changed now that now that they're, you know, behind glass, <laughs> but originally that museum, it was just the bodies were like just lined up against no! the wall and you could walk through them <laughs> and i'd like touch them and poke they... them yes oh and the reason why they eventually the <laughs> reason why they eventually put them behind the glass case and all that is because people were like slipping in and like cutting off a piece of cloth no! from them or cutting off a no! finger just to like have it <laughs> taking souvenirs like, too need, far they're taking souvenirs off the bodies and so then finally the people who were in the museum were like we we need to put them behind glass cases or something because this is just wow weird. oh my goodness wow wow wow, but, wow. i mean but so... the mummies were fascinating to see like there was things like i was not prepared for like their shoes to last oh, as well yeah. as they did compared to everything mm. else so it's like these like mummified naked bodies except for shoes yeah yeah (laughs) well except because leather is already like preserved flesh you know right so (laughs) it's just okay (laughs) anyway um it's it's fascinating and disturbing but it is like right there you're seeing like how the how the bodies were handled and i there was a lot of just throwing them in 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 a yeah. hole in the ground and then digging them yeah. up later. I said earlier in the episode that I'd never seen a dead body in real life, and I just realized that's not true because I have seen a bog body in a museum, um, and that too was like 
weirdly surreal because you're like that used to be a person it doesn't look like a person anymore uh except it sort of kind of does because like their faces (laughs) are like weirdly recognizable as faces and you can see their fingernails and the details of their hands and their hair is often very well preserved um i fucking love mummies you guys jesus Uh, i'm gonna have to get a copy of that book and and read it again oh man (laughs) So so uh, we so we've got your your choices for how to deal with bodies in fantasy. You can bury yeah. them, you can cremate them. There are apparently way more options for mummification than I would have thought. Who knew? Oh yeah, we didn't even get into <laughs> like okay, so mostly it involves somehow drying out the body. Like for any version of mummification, you're looking at making people jerky. Uh, The ancient Egyptians did this by carving out all of the organs and filling the body with a special kind of salt. It's salt-preserved people jerky. It's fine. Uh, Some people do it by smoking the body. More of a dry rub, really. More of a dry rub, sure. Uh, And just, like, leaving it... Uh, some people put them sort of on a platform over a fire and put lots of damp wood on it so that they get smoked. Uh, some of them put them in a dry cave on the top of a mountain so that the cold, dry air sort of sucks the moisture out. The freeze drying. Uh, the freeze drying, yes. This is how we get a lot of the Incan mummies. Uh, what other mummification? Also, that is how the uh, Arctic explorers got... Uh, inadvertently mummified because they got freeze-dried when they died of lead poisoning because their uh, tin cans were not properly uh, manufactured. Uh, (laughs) The things I know. Uh, What else? What else? What else? Uh, Oh, you can bury them in hot sand. A lot of the uh, Egyptian mummies that we have aren't actually rich people. They're people who were just like buried in the desert and who were accidentally mummified that way. Uh, yeah, so if you if you go to, to mummify someone in your fantasy culture, don't do this in real life. Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, you're just looking at... Unless it's unless your job. Unless it's your job. Right. Uh, well, or, you're just... I was going to say, because, you know, we, we, we do tend to foist this off on professionals, but there are actually some places where it is legal to prepare a body yourself. I just don't know if it's legal to freeze dry or do a dry rub or anything like that yeah. on, on people. Yeah. So... Check the laws in your own areas. We cannot dispense legal advice. There's your disclaimer. (laughs) Basically, like in a fantasy book, if you're doing mummification, your big enemy is going to be moisture uh, because moisture is going to fuck up. Moisture and like lack of salt because salt helps preserve everything. We'll get into like the history of salt in another episode and why (laughs) it's great. I have a lot of things to say about salt. Someone take the t- the podcast away from me, please, for the love of God. <laughs> Actually, I was just I was just starting to think because we talked about like you don't just leave the body where it falls, but I was just thinking if in your culture, if you have a thing where people die and then resurrect like a couple days later, maybe moving the body is just rude. <laughs> like you know, you <laughs> it can be very disorienting. Like for someone. right. <laughs> well, and and that kind of, I mean, links to a a real world custom that that you might consider for a second world fantasy which is like laying out or keeping Mm. vigil or awake which is that that they they would have people kind of laid out for at least a couple days before you bury them which kind of has the dual purpose of like give the family time to prepare the body time to mourn and grieve and also just to be sure just to be sure. Just yeah. to be sure. Because because some people, sometimes people do get like <laughs> blind drunk and do appear dead for a, a bit. And do your do your dead body rituals just take into account the, let's just make sure that it's really real yeah. this time. Because that was another thing. With that cholera epidemic in, in Guanajuato, there were people who ended up getting buried alive. And so there was like scratch oh. marks on the insides of the yep. coffins. And, and... Yep, yep. <laughs> yep, so... So take that into consideration. Develop some good good rituals around the family, That's gathering so another body creepy. and doing whatever they need to do. Yep. Yeah. That's <laughs> You knew this was gonna be a creepy no, idea. No, yep, I we, mean, did. Like, the idea, we did. The idea of like being buried alive and like 
or someone being buried alive and like scratching at the inside of the coffin. That's also how we get legends about vampires because that happened in Eastern Europe pretty often too. Well, I don't know about pretty often, but often, often enough, enough to form <laughs> often enough to form legends about um, where like they would disinter them and their hands would be bloody and scratches on the inside of the coffin. And they're like, oh shit, this is a fucking vampire. <laughs> let's let's make sure it's good and dead now. Yeah. In your world building, then, is there are there, for example, things like vampires or zombies or ghouls or mm-hmm. other things that are dead, you know, is are the undead part of your world? And how do you fit that into the greater cosmology of how your world yeah. works? I think that in our world that we're building, we're keeping it fairly low magic. But so I don't think you guys can feel free to kill, correct me. But my instinct is that we probably don't have undead creatures i'm I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you yes all right cool so like once you're dead you're dead uh i think we can address whether there's an afterlife in like maybe the religions episode right and and that may very well vary from you know culture to culture because we don't have something like magic that is um answering that question for us in some ways so right that'll be a lot of interpretation well, there's the, there's the question of, is there a real afterlife? And mm-hmm. also, how does each individual culture interpret the question of, is there an afterlife? Because if there is a real afterlife, then not everybody necessarily knows about it. Not necessarily everybody acknowledges it. I am doing the religions episode far too early, so I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> Let's come back to this in a couple weeks. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, so one other thing that comes up when you have, um, you know, people passing away, I'll use the euphemism, is that what do you do with their stuff? So you have inheritance or not, and you have what a society thinks about stuff when you don't have someone owning their stuff anymore. Mm. Who put this example of the the Amish no inheritance policy? I did. So Tell me everything about that. I don't know anything about it. (laughs) Yeah, one of the bonuses of living in the sticks is that, like, we're really close to the Amish, so I know a lot of random stuff about the Amish. But um, most Amish communities, and I'm going to say most because the Amish are not, like, a homogenous group. They actually are different groups. But most have um, a policy of no inheritance. So the idea is that you don't get to attach to worldly stuff. It's not – it doesn't have meaning beyond the use that you need it for. So when someone in the Amish community passes away, they um, like inventory all the all their stuff and then they have an auction. Mm. And if for some reason you really want grandma's rolling pin or grandpa's handsaw, you go and bid on it. And that's how you may or may not get it. And then that money is usually used um, either for final expenses or um, to support if you have, you know, a widow or widower who needs to have kind of that extra little bit of life insurance policy. Um, so, but it really reflects that that belief that they have about stuff is not important. And it's so not important that when someone dies, it's literally just stuff. It's yeah. not important in any way except for the use that it might have to somebody else. So mm. sell it. That's really interesting. But obviously other cultures have different concepts about stuff. And one thing I was thinking too with that, it, you know, how do you even understand lineage and, um, you know, who who owns the stuff to begin with? And even non-physical stuff like concepts of power or concepts of rulership or... Right. Yeah. Land yeah. ownership. Like, that's something that, that's you know... That's a huge thing. We have an assumption in Western culture that if you, like, are living on land that you own it, well, you know, that definitely comes out in inheritance. Who inherited pause farm when he died but if your culture doesn't have a concept of land ownership that's not part of the death experience at all i just discovered a couple days ago uh, i was doing some research on the ottoman empire uh, and i discovered that for the most part they didn't have okay so throughout most of history land has been owned by rich people right uh and usually it is grants of land from a king to someone who they are making a noble um so dukes own duchies and that's the biggest section of land and within duchies there are uh smaller and smaller it's broken up into smaller and smaller pieces right so like counties and under that manners which is the area of land that a lord owns um 
And the Ottoman Empire did not have um, inherited land titles. Um, so, like, if the king gave you uh, a piece of land to govern, you were essentially just that, just a governor uh, who was a stand-in for the king, right? It was, like, directly owned by the king rather than being passed down. So once you die, the land just reverts back to the king and he gives it to somebody else, and your heirs don't get to inherit it. That's interesting. Yeah, which is, I did not know that. That is very, and, and you also have um, some cultures where, um, similar to that, but it's like usage rights. Mm. You don't actually own it, but you have the right to use it for fill in the blank agriculture or hunting or whatever. So that could get interesting as well. Yeah. Uh, so another interesting thing is a ha like mourning customs. Like what do we do to acknowledge because it's more about us at that point rather than the dead person like this is something right. to signal that i have experienced a loss and that i the survivor am sort of going through some stuff right now um but it can also be a way of celebrating the person who died but it seems in some ways that it's usually more about the person who survived rather than the person who who died would you agree yes but it's also it can be something very personal yeah. to you know to the survivors, but also very sort of public performance. I mean, not not to say, but it is a thing you do to show the right, community right. that you are in mourning and like maybe even confirming that you are doing it the proper respectful mm -hmm. way, rather than necessarily what you as an individual who is in mourning needs for right. mourning. Like, I think we're all thinking about the Victorian system of uh, mourning, where, like, the immediate family would be in full, quote-unquote, full mourning for a year, and you would be expected to wear, or was it six months? I think it was a year. Rowena? I'm not sure on the exact timing on it, but, but yeah, you, you, had, you had, like, you had chunks of time, a full mourning, yeah. and then... Where like, you're wearing full black, and you're only allowed to wear obsidian or jet jewelry... Uh, and then you go into half mourning where you can wear like purple and maybe like some gray, other dark colors. Mauve, yeah. Gray. Yeah. Uh, and then you can sort of like gradually introduce lighter colors back into your wardrobe. Right. And I can see that a lot of people, I think it's easy to, to imagine that a lot of people found that oppressive and tiresome, but I can't help but think that it must have been kind of good in a way as well. Because then it signals to everyone around you, like, what you're going through. And that maybe they should be a little bit more careful and gentle with you in this trying time. Rather yes. than just, like, having no signaling at all, that, like we do today. And and part of the whole full morning and half morning, etc. was also what social events you were allowed to partake in. So, like, you couldn't mm -hmm. go do fun social events while you were in full morning. Which, again, might seem like an oppressive kind of thing, but also is a really good out when you don't feel like going and pretending to be having a good time uh -huh. when you're really depressed that your mom died or whatever because, you know because we also have to remember that that kind of social interaction wasn't so much a voluntary thing this was something you were yes. expected to do like like right. if you are just staying at home all the time and not going out to any parties and not socializing with your neighbors then that says something about you as a person and people don't like that that is breaking the social order so if you're in mourning it's more that you're being given permission to break the usual social rules and i think that a lot of times we miss that kind of context yeah and that's the thing that can be part of mourning rituals in general is a a thing that allows the mourners to break social mm -hmm. rules one or one way or another as just as just part of how the society deals yep. with mourning so that can be that can be an interesting thing in in a, in a weird in weird world building choices of what does breaking the social norms mean like if you are formally in mourning like and you you know the person who's formerly in mourning just goes and walks into a store and just takes whatever and walks out. Does everyone else go like, no, that's okay. <laughs> they don't need to pay yeah. right now because... Right. <laughs> that would be really interesting. You can... So... That, I mean, that'd be real interesting that, that, like, literally when you're in that, you know, period, whether it's, you know, five days or a week or whoever it is, if you could... If it is just, like, 
the rules literally don't apply to you. That would be an interesting choice to make. So I can kind of do like a, a light version of this and in my book. <laughs> Very so um, that there, in, in the first book, there are kind of two major cultures that you talk about in the, the, the main um, national Galatine culture um, doesn't really have a formal mourning practice beyond like they'll they'll acknowledge mourning with like wearing black crepe and things like that. But in terms of your regular life, you're expected to keep on going. Like if you have a job, you aren't going to earn money if you don't show up um, and that kind of thing. Like it, it's a very like mm, mercantile capitalism. capitalism kind of system. Whereas yeah. the Pelian culture that a lot of immigrants are from this other Pelian culture, they have what they call a quiet fortnight which is you are not expected to do jack squat for two weeks. You can go in your house, lock your door. You don't have to work. You don't have to cook. You don't have to clean. Your neighbors will take care of you. And this yeah. idea of like, you, you're allowed to shut down for a while is like, I mean, obviously relies on having a system outside of straight up um, capitalism. Here's your paycheck. You have some kind yeah. of community support there as well that allows other people in some ways to participate in your morning mm -hmm. um if that makes sense like i kind of think of now we have the like take them a meal .com and things like that that kind of allow people yeah. to participate um in the grieving process for people but yeah that difference between kind of society at large expectations and then like smaller community expectations in terms of mourning yeah and there's also in the things you come up with, you can have what's expected at different points in the morning. Like, there's the things that maybe you're expected to do immediately upon death, the things that you're expected, you know, that you do over the course of, say, two weeks, the things that you do over the course of six months, or what have you, or how you celebrate those things. Um, I have a little, in my book, in... <laughs> in the Fenmere job, which is the one coming out, I haven't shown really anything about too much about death rituals or funerals or mourning in terms of the main culture but there is a bit because i have you know a bunch of immigrant cultures that live in one small part of the city and i have a bit where someone from one of those cultures dies in a fight and then there is this sort of immediate reaction from all the other people in their culture because that's what you do is immediately like sort of state that person's name and then sing their soul to to their ancestors like right yeah. away and that's the thing you do but i mean there's tons of cool neat world building choices that will make for for make for good stories and story choices that that you can do and in, in, in how grief is expressed yeah. um and just to mention uh bouncing off something that rowena mentioned about uh in her book yes. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, there is that soci socioeconomic um, aspect of, of grief, too, um, because, like, if you're doing the whole full mourning thing, right, like, you have to be able to afford a second set of clothes. And what other, like, can you guys think of any other sort of layers and ways that m just finances and resources can affect the, the grieving process? Well, it can be the difference between does somebody get, like, a full tomb mm -hmm. and, or, you know, a spot in the family mausoleum, or do they get a single plot in a graveyard? Do they get thrown in with the other unnamed bodies in a, in a mass grave? Like, all of that ties, one, to, to, to the socioeconomic factors, but also to the factors of what's going on in the culture. Like, if a lot of people are dying at once if there's a plague or something like yeah. that then it's more likely that all the dead bodies are going to be just thrown together real quick because nobody has time or energy to deal with them mm, properly yeah. um one thing that i learned was how much the black death affected our western view of death because that that was oh. when we came up with the image of the grim reaper because, mm -hmm. like, a, a lot of people do not, like, we have the image of the Grim Reaper. We all know what that is. But a lot of people don't realize the symbolism of the uh, scythe that he holds. Because people had this image of a man walking through a field of wheat and just mowing it down. Like, that is the rate at which people were dying of the Black Death. Uh, and I think that really, really affected on a huge lasting cultural cultural level um how we think about death and approach death today 
700 yeah. years later that image still yeah. exists even even though we're a little bit removed from context and i think the spanish right. or the the flu epidemic uh of what was it 1912 19 spanish was 19 1919 i think it was i think it was 1910 because it was 1919 because it was after world war one yeah yeah it was this double whammy mm. of world war one and then the flu ep- epidemic yeah um and i think that that yeah. not quite on the same scale <laughs> But that was the m- time in most recent memory that, no, actually, I can think of another one because the AIDS epidemic as well. Um, yeah. Like between the yeah. Black Death, the Spanish flu epidemic and the AIDS epidemic, uh, like those are the three sort of touchstones of Western culture that have hugely affected how we view death. You know, it's interesting you brought up um, the AIDS epidemic. And one thing that I I did not know that I just learned recently um, that kind of is a question we haven't brought up yet, but how do people die and do we have ritual or something surrounding the concept of what kind of, of environment do people die in? Um, that Mother Teresa actually started missions in the United States to give people dying of AIDS a place to die with dignity. She opened homes in like New York, I think just mm. New York and maybe other major cities that were basically places for people to go and die in a safe place where they were being cared for kind of a hospice setting specifically for that um which was actually what she was doing in india too quite a bit a lot of her homes were actually basically places for people to have a safe place where they were kind of being loved on and cared for and you know Mm -hmm. given dignity at the time that they died um which kind of i think raises some questions about you know how does a culture how does a culture give dignity to death or do they? Yeah. What is the concept of dignity in right. terms of death in yeah, your culture? Yeah. And um, that sort of ties back to a thing that I was going to, to bring up with the flu epidemic before I got distracted was one of the ways that we remember people is um, through mementos. And one extremely gruesome and very Halloween-y thing uh, that trivia bit that I know about is that the flu epidemic happened just when photography was really getting popular. And I think that this this was more a Victorian kind of thing, actually, mm-hmm. now that I think about it, the memento mori photos. So if you ever see a black and white photo of like a cute little child in a Victorian dress and it is extremely crisp and clear, remember that that photo took a couple minutes to take and children tend to be fidgety. So most of the photos of living children are a little bit blurry. Um, so if a f- the photo is crisp and clean, that means you're looking at a photo of a dead body. <laughs> if their eyes are open, that means that those eyes were painted onto their eyelids. Uh, and if they're standing up, that means that the photographer had a cool little stand that you sort of just like clamp a body to so that they can have a photo as if this person is alive so that we can keep a piece of with them with us and remember them. I am full of weird facts about death today. <laughs> I didn't know that I knew this many weird bits of trivia. <laughs> this is my goth phase is why. <laughs> so here's here's a question. We had okay. had talked about um, talk of the socioeconomic elements of death. Maybe think about funerals and how much funerals yeah. cost. Um, and I was recalling, I believe in ancient Rome, it was common practice to actually hire mourners. So you yes. had a very like ostentatious, like there are people wailing loudly for your, your funeral mm-hmm. service. You must've been important. And I wondered if this is a spot that maybe, um, we could each on this, on the fly, if we want to pop in a thing about our cultures, what is something about the funeral service of each of our cultures or funeral remembrance, or maybe it's not a funeral at the time, maybe it's something else, um, but something about our cultures and funerals. So I was hoping that you would ask this question and I already started thinking (laughs) about it earlier today. uh, And I came up with a really cool thing. So as you may may remember, my country, Al-And, has these gourds in the ground And when people are wandering in the desert, a lot of times they get their water from these gourds. So I think that they have a sort of cultural belief that life comes from under the ground. And so I think that they would be a burial culture because like like you get water from the ground and then you return the body to the ground like you're giving something back to the earth. So that was my tidbit. I like it. Thank you. I like it. 
I'm just going to keep uh, harping on those water gourds until the end of time. <laughs> it's the only good thing that I have about that culture. Okay. I I just came up with a really weird, Weird's good. fun one in off the top of my head. When somebody dies in, in my culture, the name of which I've written it down. At this <laughs> it's written down somewhere, just not somewhere that I'm looking right at the moment. Um, so when someone dies, the tradition is for their closest friends and family to go through their clothing. And each person who is part of this ritual takes an item of their clothing and wears mm. it. And then they each, in wearing the clothing, take take the time to be the person who died to celebrate. Interesting. Ooh, I, I like have a couple follow-up questions about that. Okay, go ahead. So does it have to be the items of clothing that they were wearing at the time that they died. No, no. It is Great. items of clothing within their within their <laughs> just like any of the clothes they owned. Okay. Any clothes what they about owned. what about for people who were too poor to own more than one set of clothing? Then then their friends and family do it one at a time. Okay. Uh, but it does have to be then the probably the clothes that they died in. Probably the clothes they died in. <laughs> That's a bit icky, but I'm here for it. Um, as I think we have already established on uh, this whole, happening. Then there's it's a whole happening. ritual of removing those clothings, you know, cleansing them, you know, ceremonially, and then doing that ceremony. All right. So it's not like if a guy gets stabbed, then you're going to have to wear the actual. You're going to have to wear the bloody shirt. Bloody no. shirt. Okay. All right. I mean, it's still going to have a stab hole in it, though, even after you cleaned right. it. Maybe, maybe there are special dispensations for the truly icky. If it's, <laughs> yeah. if it's just beyond the pale, you can skip okay. the shirt and wear your I own. Have, I have a suggestion for in that case. You might, if like the clothing is, for some reason, really, really icky or unusable for some reason, if they burned to death um, and that was the only... Uh, set of clothes that they had it, for whatever reason if that's the only option maybe you have someone make a replica of a really iconic item of clothing that that person owned and then you wear that as kind of a spiritual kind right. of you get you get a new thing of clothing and then you gift it to the dead first got it and yes then, yes then you do then the you wear it. With it i like it that makes sense i'm glad that we solved that huge plot hole right there <laughs> Uh, for Aleta, what have you got? Wow. Okay, so um, my my culture, the the all not leery, um, that music is really important to their culture, and so I think instead of having funeral services, they have concerts. And depending on how okay. much money your family has, is how big or grandiose of a concert you have. If you rent out a concert hall and put on a symphony, or if it's like everyone gets together in the kitchen and brings their instruments and like yeah. does their thing, and, and that's that's your service. But but yeah, I think that and as an in memoriam, like that's something in your funeral planning, you you decide like what music yeah. do I want played at my funeral, like as my funeral. I also have some follow-up questions for you then. Okay. Uh, is it <laughs> is it purely instrumental? Not necessarily, no. You, okay, you could, so you could it could just lists. be... It could just be, like, people singing in the kitchen then. It could or be, like, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, is it usually happy songs or sad songs or... Except, like, I think what's the tone either, of the Like, if you, if you plan your own, you pick your favorite music. And if you okay. don't, if you if you don't have a chance to do that because you get, like, hit by a runaway horse or whatever. Yeah, um, or before, maybe you're, like, 12. Right. Then your, your family just picks something that they think represents you as, as a person. Okay. Cool. This is neat. I'm. I think that we have some some neat things here. I'm a I little like bit it. slighted that nobody had any follow up questions for me, but fine, fine. <laughs> uh, any last words that we have to say? Um, one thing. What are our jumped... last words? Our, our last, last words. words. One thing that jumped to mind when you were talking before about how where the image of the Grim Reaper came from that we hadn't yeah. really touched on at all was cultures having death be a personified figure mm, yes i definitely think that that is that that can be a cool thing to play with especially you know if you can if you're have if you're writing a story where your gods or other forces of nature are personified characters that show up and walk around you can have death show up and walk around like in mm -hmm. like in the terry pratchett books yeah <laughs> or uh in the greek myths where you have hades the god of the underworld yes um who he's not really death 
but you know like he's in charge of people who have died and so if you were making a supplication to anyone it would probably be to him cool i think that's it i think those were our last words you thanks for listening to this episode of world building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life our next episode goes up on november 13th rowena and i will finally get a chance to froth at the mouth about clothing and fiber arts she's primarily a seamstress and i do a bit of almost every fiber craft including null binding which uh i will maybe tell you about in two weeks we'll see we really hope you like this episode If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. Geography can affect your culture's burial customs. In New Orleans, for example, they use a lot of mausoleums, partially because the water table is so high that sometimes buried coffins just sort of, um, float back to the surface, which isn't great, but yeah, that's how it be sometimes.